Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. Today I'm going to give you a few recipes that could be used for Thanksgiving, which is coming up in a little bit from now. I like the traditional dishes on Thanksgiving, but sometimes I think it'd be nice just to have a new spin. So this one is a recipe from smittenkitchen.com for balsamic braised Brussels with pancetta. It seems unfair to compare the two Brussels sprouts dishes that I have made in the last couple of weeks because they're so different. About the only thing that they have in common is the stand where I bought them. It's like comparing apples and oranges, boiled lima beans, and chocolate cake. The cuteness of my kid versus the cuteness of any other baby on earth, you know? One of the dishes dishes is rich, salty, sweet, and fork tender. The other is raw, slightly rubbery, acidic, and at least, according to a review on Epicurious that I probably should have taken more seriously, was like eating a bowl of grass. You'll never know which one we liked better. But still, I couldn't resist the latter one. I'm obsessed with slaws, and the prospect of making a winter slaw of shredded Brussels was impossible to resist. I shaved them as thin as mandoline possible, toasted the walnuts, added peels of Romano cheese, and tossed them with lemon juice and olive oil, only to end up with a knotty bowl of... grass. (laughs) I salvaged it a bit by soaking it a while in a homemade vinaigrette with a bit of honey, and you know, we did eat it, which is the sign of a not total disaster, but I wouldn't wouldn't willingly make it again from this recipe. Nevertheless, infant fist-sized Brussels are everywhere right now, and I'm always looking for new ways to cook them. So when I started considering how lovely a flavorful braise of them could be, I was thrilled to see that one of my favorite cookbooks had beaten me to the punch. These were phenomenal, and like all the recipes in that book, just layers upon layers of flavor. Crunchy breadcrumbs, buttery shallots, and balsamic caramelized pancetta somehow all nestled together in one cozy dish. And she has the cutest picture of her child holding a little Brussels sprout in its fist, and it fills the whole fist of her little baby. So cute. Anyway, here we are with Brussels, balsamic braised Brussels with pancetta. This is adapted from Sunday suppers at Luke's. The only major change that I made to this recipe was that I adapted it to cook the medium-sized Brussels that I can easily get versus the baby ones that Goin recommends. This required more liquid and much more cooking time, but the reward is a heartier bite with the same complex flavors. The recipe below is for the larger sprouts. This serves six to eight as a side. You'll need one and a half cups of fresh breadcrumbs, though I found I needed far less, two teaspoons of thyme leaves, two tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil, plus an extra glug or two for drizzling, four tablespoons of unsalted butter, two pounds of medium-sized Brussels sprouts, washed and trimmed, salt and pepper, six ounces of pancetta in a small dice, that's one and a half cups, three tablespoons of minced shallots, one tablespoon of minced garlic, one half cup of balsamic vinegar, one and a half cups of veal stock, rich chicken or vegetable broth, 
more if needed, and then two tablespoons of chopped parsley. Heat oven to 350 degrees, and in a bowl mix breadcrumbs and thyme with a couple glugs of olive oil and spread on a cookie sheet. Toast, tossing frequently until golden brown, about 10 to 12 minutes. Heat butter and remaining olive oil in a large skillet over medium-high heat until foamy. Then add the Brussels sprouts, sprinkle with salt and pepper, and saute, tossing frequently until lightly brown, about 7 to 10 minutes. Add the diced pancetta and saute, tossing frequently until sprouts are well-browned and soften slightly and pancetta is crisp, about 10 to 15 minutes more. Reduce the heat, add shallots and garlic, and saute until fragrant, about two minutes. Increase the heat to high, add balsamic vinegar and stock, and cook, tossing frequently until the sprouts are glazed and tender, about 20 minutes. Add more stock if needed. Taste, adjust the seasoning if necessary, and sprinkle with chopped parsley and transfer to a warm serving bowl and scatter the breadcrumbs on top. Next recipe, same fame, acorn squash with chili lime vinaigrette. A firm believer in balance or some fumbling approximation of it, if I tell you about the bewildered, exhausted, and terrifying, it is only fair that I tell you that today, a day I was certain was Monday the whole day long, was knocking out of the park great day. Sparing you all the dribbling details, suffice it to say there has been a raise, bragging rights, and even the ability to make someone else's day. I took the string of greatness to the store, not jeans, of course, I know better than to rub my luck in the face of a narrow-hipped crowd, where I found a sweater I suspect I love enough to wear it until it's threadbare, and a pair of heels that, crosses fingers that they will continue to, almost feel comfortable. Although I initially eschewed our first taste of it in August, I am unbelievably excited that fall is here, especially now that September and October have been so very kind to let us hang on to an open-toed cardigan experience for all of these bonus weeks. Guilty as charged, I've been busy cooking and eating things I haven't photographed, and I'm here now to confess my food blogging sin so that we can all move on to the things that I wasn't so remiss about. Last Thursday night, in celebration of the arrival of two of the most fiercely sharp and stunning knives from two of the most fiercely sharp and stunning friends, I made Molly's version of one of my favorite dishes, the mighty onion tart. The last time I made an onion tart, that time a la Julia Child, I diced in some bacon and gruyere, but this time there was none of that, and I loved it more. Some people enjoy finding extra flavors to tuck into dishes. I get excited when I find out they taste just as good with less. The only thing I altered was that I added a pinch of cayenne, not enough to make you grimace, but enough to occasionally prod you awake from your sweet, buttery coma. Being awake is important when your dinner tastes this good and there are crumbs, delicate crumbs, that need attending to. Sunday night brought us sweet potatoes and baby Brussels sprouts from the Abington Square Farmer's Market, as well as field grains, so good in a salad that I'm just going to announce right now that I'm going to at least try to not buy bagged or boxed ever again. The Brussels were roasted with olive oil and salt until crispy and flaky, like phyllo on the outside and nutty on the inside. 
The potatoes were wedged and sprinkled with this blend of spices, and there's a link on smittenkitchen.com, that if you're like me, we'll probably assume you'll hate, but then you'll like it so much you'll have to reconsider your relationship with fennel and cilantro. Only good things could come of this. It should be noted that everything we bought at the market was grown in New Jersey, like me. So I must arrogantly presume that's why they were so good in every way. So now that we're all caught up with the unphotographed, and I've hopefully whetted your appetite, two more things to consider. Roasted acorn squash wedges with chili lime garlic vinaigrette and roasted haricot vert with toasted acorn squash seeds Finding a stash of energy where I was certain it was depleted, I cooked these things at an illogical 9 p.m. tonight while my husband played volleyball. He didn't win, don't ask. I know eating dinner at 10.45 is ridiculous, irresponsible, and obviously badly planned, but you know what? I'll take a perfect dinner at the very end of a perfect day over average takeout on a well-timed, terrible day anytime, and I suspect you would too. So maybe even tomorrow, you know, because I have a sneaking suspicion that it's your turn next for an uber spectacular one. Here we go. Roasted acorn squash with chili lime vinaigrette. This is adapted from Gourmet from October of 2006, an oldie but a goodie. This makes four servings. You'll need two, uh, which is two acorn squash, about one and a half to one and three quarters pounds. Uh, one half teaspoon of black pepper, one teaspoon salt, six tablespoons of olive oil, one garlic clove, one and a half tablespoons of fresh lime juice or to taste, one to two teaspoons of finely chopped fresh hot red chili, including seeds, two tablespoons of chopped fresh cilantro. You're going to put the oven racks in upper and lower thirds of the oven and preheat the oven to 450 degrees Fahrenheit. Have the squash lengthwise and then cut off and discard the stem ends. Scoop out seeds and cut squash lengthwise into three-quarter inch wide wedges. Toss squash with black pepper, three-quarters teaspoon of salt, and two tablespoons oil in a bowl, and then arrange cut sides down in two large shallow baking pans. Roasted squash, switching position of pans halfway through roasting until the squash is tender and the undersides of the wedges are golden brown, about 25 to 35 minutes. While squash roasts, mince garlic and mash to a paste with the remaining one quarter teaspoon salt. Transfer the paste to a small bowl and whisk in lime juice, chili to taste, cilantro, and the remaining one-quarter cup of oil until combined. Transfer the squash, brown sides up, to a platter, and drizzle with vinaigrette. Sounds pretty yummy to me. I would really like to try that recipe. Next thing, we're going to go right for the dessert. Plum and cream scone cobbler. Looks amazing. Bright red, beautiful Plum, I would say it's a raspberry color with these scones on top that broken into cubes that look about the size of a marshmallow. Yum city. Were you new to cooking or eating and came to Smitten Kitchen for a reasonable understanding of what a cobbler is and is not? Well, you would find neither reason nor understanding about cobblers or, let's be realistic, many other things. 
There were before today four cobbler recipes in the archives, and all of them represent different interpretations of what Wikipedia calls a, quote, dessert consisting of a fruit filling poured into a large baking dish and covered with a batter, biscuit, or dumpling before being baked. Is this a good time to mention that Smitten Kitchen Keepers, which will be out in a mirror, but who's counting 129 days, has two additional cobbler recipes in it, one I made for breakfast and a savory one for an incredible summer dinner. And I've got a secret. This is an older recipe. Smitten Kitchen Keepers is out. And we will, should be able to get to that recipe here next. So why cobbler number seven? Well, because for the last three summers, this has been my dessert cobbler go-to. Simple to make with leftovers that hold up perfectly for days in the fridge. It's easy to jump in. We're not peeling fruit, no, nor are we expected to guess what the fruit will weigh once we pit it, as if anyone is able to calculate it in their head on a screaming hot day in an open-air market. It doesn't take long to assemble. There are no rolling pins or cookie cutters. The topping is my favorite cream scone with the sugar and butter bumped up a little. Messily Tetris over super ripe plums, although any kind of stone fruit works here. In the oven, the cobble scones find each other, some tumbling over like blocks, sopping up some of the bubbling juices below and browning on top. Their centers stay perfect, halfway between cake and cookie, but with a rich crumb and light almond flavor. I keep the sugar low because I like the contrast of the bracingly tart plum juices with non-negotiable vanilla ice cream, that I'm melting over the top. But should you not want ice cream on your cobbler, who hurt you? <laughs> you can adjust accordingly. Ah, beautiful photo of the white vanilla ice cream right in the middle of this dish melting into the sides. <laughs> it's just absolutely beautiful. Plum and cream scone cobbler. It serves eight, takes one hour, and the source is Smitten Kitchen. You can use any kind of ripe stone fruit here. I love this with peaches, cherries, apricots, or a mix thereof. Just swap by weight. The sugar level is listed as a range, and I want to be absolutely clear that if you use only one half cup, you will have a very tart cobbler that's almost definitely not for everyone. It contrasts beautifully with vanilla ice cream, but, be, but will be a little harsh on its own. The two-thirds cup level will be far from overtly sweet, I promise. So for the fruit, you'll need two and a half pounds of unpitted, fresh, ripe plums, any variety, or another stone fruit. Juice of a half of a lemon, one half to two-thirds cup of granulated sugar, four tablespoons of cornstarch, that's 30 grams, or three tablespoons of tapioca flour or starch, that's 25 grams. For the scone topping, we'll need two cups of all-purpose flour, plus more for the counter, one tablespoon of baking powder, one quarter cup of granulated sugar, one teaspoon of kosher salt, one half cup, which is eight tablespoons of unsalted butter, cubed, one half teaspoon of almond extract, or one teaspoon of vanilla extract, one cup of heavy cream divided, and one tablespoon of coarse or turbinado sugar. You're going to heat your oven to 400 degrees Fahrenheit 
You're going to have the pit and pit the plums, then cut the fruit into one half inch slices. Place in a 9 by 13 or equivalently sized baking dish, then add lemon juice, sugar, and cornstarch and stir to combine. In a large bowl, whisk together flour, baking powder, granulated sugar, and salt. Add butter and use your fingertips or a pastry blender to work the butter into smaller pieces until the largest is the size of small peas. Add your almond or vanilla extract and all but one tablespoon of the heavy cream. You are adding 15 tablespoons, by the way. And stir into the buttery flour, butter flour mixture until it forms a larger mass. Knead once or twice with hands if needed to come together. Then sprinkle the counter with flour and turn the dough out onto it. Flour the top of the dough and pat it out to a generous one half inch thickness. Use a knife to cut the dough and slab into one and a half inch squares. And then arrange squares over the fruit in the pan, spacing them slightly. Brush tops of the, sh- of the scone squares with the remaining one tablespoon of heavy cream and sprinkle with coarse sugar. Bake the cobbler for 40 to 45 minutes until the scones are puffy and browned on top and fruit is bubbling juices up around the pan. If you can bear it, let the cobbler cool for 15 to 20 minutes before digging in. Fruit will thicken as it cools and serve with a big scoop of vanilla ice cream on top. Nothing else will do. As promised, here's the recipe that talks about Deb's new cookbook coming out. This one is called Green Angel Hair with Garlic Butter and Smitten Kitchen Keepers is here. Today, my third cookbook, Smitten Kitchen Keepers, comes out. And thank goodness, because it's been impossibly hard to keep it from you this long. It feels downright unfair that I figured out how to make the best molasses cookie. Thick, tender, but also one bowl. No hand mixer required. The kind that makes your whole home smell like the holidays, and you're only finding out about it today. My favorite pot roast is in there. Sometimes I add rice shortly before it's done for truly one pot meal of a braise that feels perfect for this cold week. There's a warm hoagie that's practically a vegetarian cheesecake, cheesesteak, but the most, sorry, I got cheesecake on the mind. It's a cheesesteak though, warm hoagie. The most perfect chocolate chip cookie that I could possibly dream up is in there. It has salted walnut brittle inside. Yum. A deep dish, actual doorstop of a broccoli cheddar quiche that serves a crowd and an egg salad just for us. The easiest three-layer chocolate party cake that could ever exist is filled with a salt-flecked milk chocolate buttercream and it's designed to fit in the bottom of a shopping bag so that you can take it everywhere with you. The actual craziest thing I've suggested you do with cabbage, salt, vinegar, and char it might lead to the craziest thing that you do with cabbage, which is eat it from the pan standing up. There are cream cheese and jam challah buns that make me think of my dad. And there's a pound cake that I hope could be worth the cover price alone. They're all to me keepers, the kind of recipes that you make and know instantly that you'll want them to be part of your repertoire forever. 
For 17 years on this site, I've paid close attention to what happens when we're in the kitchen, and I try to apply everything I've learned about how to make shopping easier, cooking more doable and enjoyable, and the outcomes more reliably delicious. Because if you hate making the recipe, if the or if the process was persnickety and you dirtied every bowl in your kitchen, it barely matters if the result was otherworldly. You're going to avoid it. And I want these to be recipes that you, above all, love to make. And then there's the green angel hair with garlic butter, the swirly, verdantly tangled cover dish, which came out a whim of a party snack. A few New Year's Eves ago, I set out to make my case for the return of the whole roasted heads of garlic, except instead of roasting the garlic with a drizzle of olive oil, I used a stick of butter. Whoops! I roasted it for the better part of an hour and blended it smooth, and we smeared it on pieces of bread. And did you know, I also made a cheese souffle that night and beef wellington. The theme was old school decadence. Neither of those dishes made the impression that the roasted garlic butter did. But what if you want a weekday garlic butter confit in your life, and your life doesn't have crostini and sparkly cocktails on a Tuesday, much as that needs correction? Well then, you should take this garlic butter and blend it with a bag of spinach until the garlic butter is brilliantly green and toss it with spaghetti, finished with black pepper and sharp pecorino cheese, for not only one of the best things I've ever made for dinner, but also the recipe I expect you to look at the least. Make it once and then memorize it forever. It is quite the bright green. It's very pretty. So, um, green angel hair with garlic, butter. The recipe serves four, takes 45 minutes, and the source, Smitten Kitchen Keepers, Deb's new cookbook. You'll need one half cup of salted or unsalted butter sliced into a few pieces, one large head of garlic halved crosswise, kosher salt, five ounces of baby spinach, one pound of thin spaghetti such as angel hair or capellini, freshly ground black pepper and pecorino romano to finish. Heat the oven to 375 degrees Fahrenheit and arrange the butter slices across the bottom of a small two cup baking dish. Sprinkle with salt, one quarter teaspoon if using salted butter, and a half teaspoon if unsalted. Place the garlic halves cut side down over the butter and salt. Cover the dish tightly with foil and bake for 35 to 45 minutes until the garlic is absolutely soft when poked with a knife and golden brown along the cut side. Carefully remove the foil and then empty the garlic cloves into the melted butter. I do this by lifting the peels out of the butter with tongs, allowing most cloves to fall out and using the tip of a knife to free the cloves that don't. Scrape any brown bits from the sides of the baking vessel into the butter. Meanwhile, cook your pasta in well-salted water until one to two minutes shy of done. Before you drain it, ladle one cup of pasta water into a cup and set aside. Hang on to the pot that you cook the pasta in. Place the spinach in a blender or food processor bowl and pour the garlic butter over it, scraping out any butter left behind. Add another three-quarter teaspoon salt and several grinds of black pepper and or a couple pinches of red pepper flakes. Blend the mixture until totally smooth. If it's not blending, add one to two tablespoons of the reserved pasta water to help it along. 
taste for seasoning, and add more if needed. Pour the spinach sauce into the empty spaghetti pot and add the drained pasta and a splash of pasta water. Cook over medium-high heat, tossing constantly for two minutes until the sauce thickens and coats the spaghetti. If the pasta sticks to the bottom of the pot, add more reserved pasta water and splashes to get it moving. Tip the pasta into a serving bowl and finish with more salt and pepper and freshly grated cheese. And hurry, it disappears fast. For a note, you can replace half the butter, the four tablespoons, with olive oil if you wish. You can bump up the greens to eight ounces if you like it even greener. Make sure the dish is seasoned extra well to adjust. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.